0: How did he stand it? How did anyone stand all the things that happened in their whole life? Each thing seemed to add up until the load of them was too much to bear. It was enough to make you roll down the dock without a break. Enough to walk into the woods and never come back. Mary Emmerich from her novel, The Geography of Water. everybody, welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and mysteries. This is a podcast containing mature subject matter, as I take a moment to warn you every month. But this month's case, I have to say, requires an underlying disclaimer, that this show does feature content surrounding murder and disappearance. And in the case of this month's episode, accounts of the death of a young child. So, as always, listener discretion is advised. On this month's episode, a teenage girl becomes lost in the Wyoming wilderness. But when she's found, alive and alone, more questions are raised than answers. But first, a week of terror comes to an end in Wyoming, when a Bonnie and Clyde couple born in Nebraska are arrested in the cowboy state. The two teenagers left a trail of bodies stretching back to Lincoln, but... Are they equally guilty of murder? Part 1. Natural Born Killers The sign on the door read, Stay away. Everybody is sick with the flu. The two young men, Robert and Rodney, looked at one another, perplexed. Unsure of what to do for a moment, Robert eventually asked Rodney, Should we knock? Rodney nodded and Robert did. There was no answer from inside the small house in Lincoln, Nebraska. It was Monday, January twenty-seventh, 1958. So Robert knocked once more on the door of his mother-in-law's house. Thirty-six-year-old Velda Bartlett lived inside with her second husband, a man 21 years her senior, 57-year-old Marion Bartlett. Velda had given birth to four children over two marriages. They ranged in age from a two-year-old baby girl who lived in the home with the couple at the time to 19-year-old Rodney, who Velda had when she was 19. Rodney had since moved out on his own, but Rodney's sister, 15-year-old Carol Fugate, still lived at the home with her mother and stepfather, along with her new baby sister. On the second knock on the door, there was still no sign of anyone inside the house. Robert, who'd married Velda's oldest daughter, then went around to the back of the house the home's patriarch marion hadn't shown up for work as a night watchman in town since calling in sick a couple of days ago but maybe he was feeling well enough now to be working in the chicken coop out back that's how robert found marion bartlett dead beside the chicken coop behind the house his body wrapped in paper robert peered into an outhouse a few feet away where he saw the body of his mother-in-law velda bartlett wrapped in rags That's when Robert ran to a neighbor's house to call police. When police arrived, they also discovered the body of the couple's two-year-old daughter, deceased. Her little body had been packed away in a box and simply stacked in the attic. The crime scene was horrific, and well out of the ordinary for any police officer in Nebraska in 1958. To make matters worse, the case was not simply a triple homicide, but also a possible abduction because there was no sign of the fourth occupant of the house, Velda's 15-year-old daughter, Carol. The authorities immediately raised alarm to locate Carol, and a young man who they quickly decided she might be with, 19-year-old Charles Starkweather. The two were known to one another, and a witness told police they'd been seen traveling together in a black car headed south out of Lincoln at about the time of the murders on Monday night. Carol's being missing from the scene at once relieved and worried investigators. There was a hope that Carol had been fortunate that she hadn't been at home at the time of the murders. Perhaps she would arrive back at the scene any moment now, having spent the night at a friend's house and asking what all the commotion was about. Tragic as it would be that she would then learn the news about her mother, stepfather, and baby sister, she would at least be alive. But what if the witnesses had been right? What if Carol had been seen with Charles Starkweather in a car headed out of town? What might that mean? Was she kidnapped? Was she now being held hostage against her will by the older boy? But interviews with the family members of the victims conducted later that same day gave police another possibility to consider, could Carol have been involved in the murder of her family? Is it even within the realm of possibility that she and Charles might be in on the crime together? The question was raised after Carol's maternal grandmother, Velda's mother, told police that she'd paid a visit to the house earlier the same day, but she'd been turned away at the door by Carol herself. To her credit, Velda's mother, a woman named Mrs. Pansy Street, actually reported the interaction to police right away, and to their credit, the police took her report very seriously. Two detectives, along with Velda's mother, returned to the home the very same day. And they ultimately gained entry to the home by breaking through a window. But they found the house to be unremarkable, aside from the fact that nobody appeared to be in the home at the time. There'd been no cryptic sign on the door warning of a flu inside, and they saw no signs of violence or cause for concern, so they all left. At about the same time that police in Lincoln, Nebraska were putting the pieces together at the Bartlett home, the teenage couple they were searching for were on their way out of town in a hurry, stopping only long enough to purchase three boxes of .22 caliber ammunition and one box of shotgun shells at a gas station on their way out of town. Three more bodies were discovered the following day. Sixteen-year-old Carol King and seventeen-year-old Robert Jensen of nearby Bennett, Nebraska had apparently been carjacked and led to a cave near an abandoned schoolyard, where they were executed. As was a 70-year-old farmer who lived about a quarter mile away. He appeared to have been killed for his 22 caliber gun, and perhaps other items that may have been stolen from the farm. Asked if the triple murders on consecutive days were linked, the county sheriff responded, There is no doubt about it. Unquote adding that police were now concerned that Charles had added an additional 22 to his arsenal before fleeing once more in a blue Ford stolen from the dead teenagers. When it came to answering questions from the press about Carol Fugate, the 14-year-old who was now missing and her family murdered, local and state police were very careful with their words. Privately, investigators were becoming increasingly convinced that Carol was at least involved in the murder of her family. But suspicion was all police had. They couldn't be sure how willingly the 14-year-old girl was going along with or participating in either sets of triple murders. The two were known to hang out together, but it wasn't clear what sort of relationship they had at first, at least not according to Carol's surviving family members. And when police looked closer into Charles Starkweather's background, they made a disturbing discovery. He'd been cited before for sleeping in a car outside of a gas station in town. And police had questioned Charles Starkweather when a young boy who worked as an attendant at that gas station had gone missing the previous December. Perhaps the murders of Carol Fugate's family, if Charles had committed them, weren't his first. The gas station attendant's body was found soon after he went missing. He'd been killed by a shotgun blast to the face. Charles Starkweather was never arrested. Now with Starkweather on the run with a 14-year-old girl and six bodies in their wake, police had a much clearer view, on Charles anyway. Carol they still couldn't be sure about. Most believed that she was his hostage, must be. No more than simply along for the ride on this rampage, and how terrible that would be for her. But others weren't so sure about that. A farmer, who knew Charles Starkweather by sight, would later say that on that Monday night, shortly after the first set of murders, He had stopped along the road to help two teenagers who were stuck in the snow. The witness was certain that the male teenager was Charles. He didn't know who the girl was, but the description he gave to police was similar to Carol Fugate, and the farmer was later surprised to learn that police suspected she might be the victim of a kidnapping because, according to him, the young girl accompanying Charles Starkweather that night didn't appear to him to be in any distress whatsoever as the locals grappled with impossible questions following six brutal murders, and with some of the victims being among the community's most vulnerable. They were also trying to make sense of Carol's role in the thing. But those answers would have to wait. Now was the time to find the well-built, 210-pound red-headed teenager and his five-foot-five pixie of a passenger before the week's mayhem begot any more murder. Every man in town, it seemed, raised his hand to join the manhunt. There were no shortage of search party volunteers, which was good. But police noted a white-hot tenor accompanying the offers of assistance. Six murders in two days, with victims ranging in age from a 70-year-old farmer to a 2-year-old baby girl, had roiled the community into a frenzy. These searchers, if they did find their targets, might shoot first and figure it out afterwards, which was not so good. Also, the teenagers were well armed, police knew, and so best to keep things in the hands of the professionals for the time being. On Wednesday, January 29, 1958, authorities in seven states were asked to be on the lookout for Nebraska's reincarnation of Bonnie and Clyde. One of those states was Wyoming. The writer Henry Miller once said We create our fates every day that we live. But that hardly seems fair to Merle Collison. On Wednesday, January nineteen 1958, a 37-year-old shoe salesman from Montana, Merle Collison, pulled his Buick off to the side of the road just after driving through Douglas, Wyoming. He just couldn't drive any longer that night. He needed to rest. To do so was not unusual for interstate travelers in the 1950s, and it certainly wasn't something that Merle Collison hadn't done himself hundreds of times before no need to find a motel. All he required was a couple hours of shut-eye, and then the road-weary traveling salesman would be back on the highway. We can only hope he slept through his first and only meeting with the teenaged Charles Starkweather. The spree killer spotted Merle Collison's car, parked his own, a Packard, which was also stolen out of Nebraska, walked up to the driver's side window and fired six shots into it. Merle Collison never had a chance, and hopefully never saw it coming. He couldn't have known about any of the murders, not the three from Clara's family who had been killed, nor the two teenagers whose only mistake had been to offer Charles and Clara a ride after their vehicle had become stuck in the snow for a second time, and not the murder of the unlucky farmer who was robbed only because he happened to live within walking distance of the second murder site. And there had been two more murders that same night, early the next morning to be more precise. After stealing the car they'd been offered a ride in by fellow teenagers Robert Jensen and Carol King, Charles and Carol drove to the wealthy part of town, where they broke into the home, seemingly at random, of Lincoln industrialist C. Lauer Ward. His wife, Clara, arrived home first, alone. She was stabbed to death. And when Ward returned home, he was shot and killed. The house's maid was also killed in the process. Charles Starkweather and or Carol Ann Fugate, depending on the account, had killed nine people at the time that Charles had walked up to Merle Collison and pulled the trigger. He was victim number ten. But he would also be the last. Because the salesman's car had a parking brake. And Charles Starkweather didn't have the first clue how to operate it. And it was that parking brake that would lead to his execution. From the January 1958 edition of the Casper Star Tribune. The stark tale of the killer's capture began unfolding Wednesday afternoon when word was received here that Starkweather had been caught about five miles east of Douglas on Highway 20-2687. The first word of the chase came from the Trona County Deputy Sheriff William Romer. Romer, on an assignment to the Bill Dixon Ranch near Natural Bridge, noticed three cars parked near the Natural Bridge cutoff on Highway 20-2687. Two men were wrestling on the ground, Romer said. I stopped my car and a girl came running over, Romer told the Times-Herald. He's going to kill me. He's crazy. He just killed a man, the girl cried. About this time, Romer continued, one man succeeded in getting the gun away, and the other jumped into the car and headed back toward Douglas. Romer then radioed to Casper, who in turn notified Douglas Police Chief Bob Ainsley. Ainsley picked up Converse County Sheriff Earl Heflin, and the two set up a roadblock near the Douglas city limits. Deputy Sheriff Romer remained with the girl. The man wrestling with the fleeing man turned out to be Joe Sprinkle, 29, of South Chestnut. Sprinkle, a landman for Sinclair Oil and Gas, was on his way to Cheyenne. Seeing the parked cars and thinking there was an accident, Sprinkle stopped. Sprinkle said he asked, can I help you? Starkweather pulled a rifle on Sprinkle and told him to raise his hands. Help me release the emergency brake or I'll kill you, Starkweather told Sprinkle. It was then I noticed the dead man behind the wheel, Sprinkle said. As I approached him, I grabbed the gun and we fought for it in the middle of the highway. I knew that if he won, I'd be dead, and I managed to wrestle it away from him, Sprinkle said. Deputy Sheriff Romer, Sprinkle, and the girl remained with the car until the coroner appeared. On the floorboards of the Buick was the body of 37-year-old Murrow Collison, riddled with bullets. After a chase that hit speeds of between 110 and 115 miles per hour, Right through the center of Douglas, Sheriff Heflin and Police Chief Ainsley succeeded in getting at least two shots into Starkweather's car. Ainsley estimated that four or five shots were fired by the two. Starkweather finally stopped his car 15 miles east of Douglas. One of the shots shattered the front and rear windows of the car, and Starkweather was cut by glass, Sheriff Heflin said. I guess he thought he was bleeding to death. That's the kind of yellow SOB he is, Heflin said. Starkweather was told to get out of the car with his hands up, Heflin said. He cursed the two law enforcement officers and told them that his sweetheart, Carol Fugate, had nothing to do with the killings. He was handcuffed and brought to the Converse County Jail in Douglas. After the arrest of her boyfriend, 15-year-old Carol Fugate was also brought to the Douglas Jail, where she was briefly held and sedated, but not arrested. The following morning, Charles Starkweather was charged with first-degree murder. No charges were filed against Carol at the time. Charles first met Carol when she was 13, he was 18, when he was dating Carol's older sister. Charles Starkweather dropped out of high school and was working in a warehouse with no serious prospects for his future when he began plotting to rob a bank. At about this time, his relationship with Carol's older sister ended, and Charles began coming over to the house every day after his shift, this time to see the 14-year-old Carol. According to Charles Starkweather's confession, the January 21st, 1958 murder spree started when Starkweather went to the Fugate home to pick up Carol. Her mother and stepfather, Velda and Marion Bartlett, told him to stay away. Charles says that's why he shot them both, and then strangled and stabbed to death their two-year-old daughter, Betty Jean. Starkweather eventually said that Carol was there the entire time, but her own account varies some. She said that when she arrived home, Charles met her with a gun and said her family was being held hostage. According to Carol, she was then told if she cooperated with him, her family would be safe. Otherwise, they would all be killed. Both teenagers were in the home when Carol's suspicious grandmother was turned away at the door and notified police. This is where the timeline of events gets a little bit fuzzy, and we'll probably never be able to see it clearly. But where and when Carol's family was actually killed is a matter of some question. When police arrived with Carol's grandmother, there was no strange sign on the door. Nothing seemed to miss inside the house, except for nobody being inside the house at the time. Although, according to both accounts, Carol and her mother and stepfather and two-year-old sister all should have been held captive inside the house at about this time. But there was no sign of anybody anywhere, and no sign of anything amiss inside the home. The place in the story where Charles and Carol's accounts greatly diverge, though, was their teenage girl victim, Carol King. She was found partially nude and stabbed multiple times in the abdomen after being shot. While Charles fully admitted to killing the boy that she'd been with, Robert Jensen, Charles claimed that Carol Fugate had actually done the stabbing of Carol King. Later on, and despite his claim to police at the moment he was arrested that she'd had nothing to do with any of the crimes, Charles would indict his girlfriend in the murders of some of the other victims in the spree as well. Eventually, Carol, who was 14 years old at the time of the events, was charged with first-degree murder. Based primarily on their opinion that Carol had several opportunities to escape from Charles, and chose not to, a jury convicted her of first-degree murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison. After 17 years as a model inmate at Nebraska Correctional Center for Women in York, Nebraska, she was released on parole. Carol married a man named Frederick Clare in 2007, but he died six years later when the SUV he was driving rolled over in Michigan, an accident which killed him. Carol was also in the car and seriously injured in the crash, and her family has said that since she has suffered several strokes. But Carol Fugate is still alive and living somewhere in Nebraska. Her last public statements came on August 8th and 9th in 1996, when she was a surprise guest on a local radio program after her request for a pardon was denied, as reported in the Lincoln Journal-Star. Fugate took many calls from listeners, many of them sympathetic to her, for hours, saying repeatedly that she had tried to break up with Starkweather before the murder spree, and that she had been a hostage, scared to run because she thought he would kill her or her family. Fugate broke down in tears at one point, thanking callers for their support. Don't think that I, every day of my life, that I think to myself, why, dear God, didn't he just kill me and be done with it, she said. He couldn't stand the fact that I didn't want to date him anymore. Carol Fugate is the youngest female in United States history to have been tried for first-degree murder. Some say wrongly so. And there's no doubt that Carol paid a heavy price for whatever she did or did not do. But among law enforcement officers and reporters, there remains a question to this day about the involvement of Carol Fugate in this case, which inspired the 1994 film Natural Born Killers, starring Woody Harrelson, and came to a bloody end along the side of a road outside Douglas, Wyoming. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is made possible by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. Riverton is a gateway to adventure and located right in the middle of the cowboy state. It's a hub for experiencing some of the best things the state has to offer: attractions like Yellowstone and the Tetons, world-class skiing coming up here this winter, mountain recreation year-round, casino gaming, cultural and historical sites on and around the Wind River Reservation. Riverton has the best access to the best of Wyoming, and when you're visiting you'll want to stay at the best. Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located and serves free hot breakfast. Stop by and say thanks for making Dead & Gone in Wyoming possible. Have yourself a vacation or a staycation and make plans to stay at Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming and feel the Hamptonality. Part 2. Extreme Makeover. The Disappearance of Fauna Jackson. The noise of a search effort descending on a place like Moose, Wyoming, is impossible to ignore, with its dozens of men, dogs, and even helicopters. Near Moose, in August 2016, is where Fauna Jackson was last seen. The 16-year-old from Cincinnati, Ohio, was in the Grand Teton National Forest for a conservation project on a ranch nearby. Fauna Jackson took a break while working on a hiking trail one morning and disappeared. Law enforcement and search teams assembled immediately. Hundreds of volunteers fanned out along the Snake River, while helicopters utilized infrared video equipment to scan for any sign of fauna from the air. Even so, it was a daunting task. That forest wilderness spans more than 300,000 acres. And some of you in Wyoming who might remember reading about this disappearance of that teenager from a city in the Midwest probably knew better than anyone the other dangers that could be found in that forest. But I'm happy to say, this part of our episode has a happy ending. Two days after she went missing, Fauna was found. You see, the mystery of Fauna Jackson's disappearance is not how she went missing. The mystery is when Fauna was found, why she looked entirely different from when she disappeared. Fauna Jackson was a member of Groundwork USA. It's a group which, in its own words from their website, quote, Pursues a future in which everyone's neighborhood environment is green, healthy, and resilient, while undoing legacies of poverty and racial discrimination and breaking the trend of widening disparity between communities that are enjoying a renaissance and communities that are experiencing disinvestment, neglect, and deepening poverty. She'd arrived in Wyoming about a week before she went missing and posted photos of the natural beauty around her on her social media sites. Wyoming is so beautiful, I can't wait to go to Yellowstone in two days, she posted, along with a photo, the day after she arrived. A Facebook post accompanying a photo of fauna dated August 1st is captioned, Late last night we stopped in front of Yellowstone Lake, the largest alpine lake in the world. Alpine means it's more than 7,000 feet above sea level. Fauna was sent to Wyoming after displaying, in the words of Groundwork USA, quote, Outstanding Performance and Leadership Potential during her work with the organization earlier that summer in Ohio. She's very strong-minded, very smart, able to handle all the tasks we had for her over the course of the summer, trail building, invasive removal, restoration work. Those are the words of Alan Edwards, Groundwork Cincinnati chapter, to WCPO Television. Honestly, one of the best employees we've ever had. That's why she got to go. Fauna was participating in a service project in Grand Teton National Park when she went missing. The Groundwork USA team on that day consisted of about 20 members who were working to reroute a hiking trail in the National Forest. At 8.45 a.m. on Saturday, August 6, 2016, Fauna told her co-workers that she needed a bathroom break, from which she never returned. She was reported missing to the Teton Interagency Dispatch Center at about 10 a.m. Rangers immediately conducted a hasty search of the area. Now, it's important to note here that a hasty search is a specific search technique that's used in search and rescue. In fact, it's the very first step that should be taken when a person is reported missing in the wilderness. A hasty search consists of small teams traveling to the most likely spot that the missing person might be. It can include 4x4s, involve planes, dogs, but the idea is to find the subject quickly and while they're still alive and responsive. The vast majority of people reported missing outdoors are found during this hasty phase of a search and rescue. In Fauna's case, ground searchers, vehicles, dogs, even an aircraft from the Wyoming Civil Air Patrol were used in the hasty search, but it produced no immediate results. And the search continued, and Fauna Jackson's photo and basic information were printed on a missing persons flyer. Fauna had been last seen wearing a white hat, tan pants, a long-sleeved green shirt that read Find Your Park and Groundwork USA across the front, and her co-workers weren't sure, but they think she might have had a purple backpack with her. All of Thursday went by with no sign of Fauna Jackson, or her clothes, or hats, or backpack. The search continued into Friday, and after she'd been missing for 24 hours, officials became officially concerned for her safety. That's because 97% of people who go missing in the wilderness are found within the first 24 hours. 97%. But fauna is now in the extreme minority of missing persons cases who are lost and not found on that first day, and then face the elements extreme heat during the day and extreme cold at night and face the most common ways to die in the woods. Those ways involve the terrain, falling or drowning. But the least common ways to die in the woods, insect bites, animal attacks, are no less lethal just because they're rare. The danger in getting lost in the woods is very often not the one big thing, the bear or the cliff, but the dozens of little things, the dozens of small bad decisions that you make, which are compounded by the fact that you're out of your element when you're lost in the woods. And in Fauna's case, vastly compounded by the fact that she was 16 years old, a 16-year-old from Cincinnati, Ohio. But then, later on Friday, some 36 hours missing, there was a break in the Fauna Jackson search, a boot. The found's boot was believed to be one of Fauna's, but Fauna wasn't believed to be wearing it at the time she disappeared. Then, shortly after on Friday, another break. Teton Interagency Dispatch Center received a report of a possible sighting of Fauna that evening. The first sightings were followed by additional sightings nearby, and then, on Saturday morning, Fauna Jackson was located in a very rugged area of the forest near the Snake River Outlook, about three or four miles from the point that she was last seen. It had only been two days since she went missing, but Fauna's search was fairly extensive. Thousands of person hours had been expended. Cutting-edge technology, dozens of states and federal resources had been implemented to find the missing 16-year-old before she might fall victim to the most rugged terrain in the country. And when she was found, 48 hours and 4 miles away, Fauna Jackson ran. She ran away. The release from the Forest Service reads, When approached by law enforcement officials, she fled. It might just be the first time ever a person reported missing ran away from their rescuers upon being found. Fauna was eventually caught up to, and after she was calmed, authorities discovered something else, too. Something even more bizarre. Also, from the official Forest Service press release, quote, Jackson changed her appearance by cutting and dyeing her hair, was wearing different clothes than when last seen, And that's it. There's no further explanation given. Fauna Jackson had cut her hair and dyed it, and changed her appearance, changed her clothes. For some reason, Fauna walked into the woods from her work site, changed her appearance, and eluded a professional-level search for two days. Fauna was uninjured, but was transported to a local hospital for a welfare check anyway. Perhaps the most obvious explanation for Fauna's actions, that the 16-year-old might have decided to deal with her 16-year-old problems in a manner reflecting the wisdom of a 16-year-old, wasn't obvious to those who knew her best, though. Fauna's high school math teacher was quoted in the local Ohio media before she was found as saying, quote, I know this is not something she would have done on her own accord. Unquote. Her father, also before Fauna was found, said, quote, I just hope and pray it's a wonderful outcome, and she just got lost. Unquote. After being released from the hospital in Wyoming, Fauna Jackson returned to her family in Ohio. She began posting again on Facebook the following month in September posting first a photo of a buffalo, and then in a separate post a selfie featuring her hair's new length and color. So far as I know, and someone please correct me if I'm wrong, Fauna Jackson has never explained why she seems to have disappeared herself into a national forest that summer. Or why, while she was alone, she changed her appearance and ran from her rescuers. Homesickness doesn't explain it. Fauna was set to return home soon. In fact, She actually stayed in Wyoming longer because she went missing than she would have if she hadn't walked into the woods. I don't know why. Maybe Fauna does. Maybe she doesn't. And I understand why some, especially in Ohio and Wyoming, were upset with Fauna over what she did. She appears to have wasted large amounts of money and time in the search for her. Not to mention the emotional toll that her disappearance undertook by anyone and everyone who knew her back home. But at the end of the day, we are talking about the actions of a 16-year-old. We were all, at that age, searching for ourselves. Some of us still are. Some of us will never find what we were looking for in that regard. And if Fauna's search for herself, misguided though it might have been, involved a detour into the Wyoming wilderness, I must say, there's a part of me that understands that. And maybe that's all we really need to know about Fauna Jackson's disappearance. This story has a happy ending. I think I'd rather keep it that way. Thank you for listening to another episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. It's a production of the TenCast Network. And please search for TenCast in your favorite podcast platform. You can check out all of our other great shows especially if you have ties to Wyoming and Fremont County especially. I think you'll enjoy listening to those as well. I want to take a moment to credit some reporting used in this month's episode. Most of the Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate reporting I used in production came from back issues of the Casper Star Tribune. They were, as usual, a great source. Also, Katie Mettler, thank you for your work on Fauna Jackson's disappearance for the Washington Post and to the other Ohio media outlets who were mentioned in the episode for their coverage of that story as well. If you enjoy Dead and Gone in Wyoming, you might enjoy some of my other work as well. I produce another podcast called Frozen Truth. It goes on location to examine missing persons cases from across the country, including the 1997 disappearance of Amy Bechtel from Lander, Wyoming. You can listen to Frozen Truth on all of the major podcast platforms. And thank you, too, for your reaction and feedback to last month's episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming. Please keep those case suggestions coming for future episodes. And make sure you stop and thank the folks, too, at the Hampton Inn and Suites for sponsoring the show. If you've never been to Wyoming, go ahead and book yourself a vacation. Or if you're a local, a staycation. That's it for this month. For Amanda Faring, Terry Wiblamo, Jared Anderson, Amanda Goddard, and Will Hill, at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller. Already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.